Welcome to the May Contain Wine Podcast, brought to you by Wine, Women, and Wellbeing. I'm your host, Lisa Webb, and together we're going to get to know incredible women doing all kinds of interesting things. So grab a glass and get ready to be inspired by the amazing women in our global community. Hello, my friends. Today I'm here with Dr. Kristen Mark. She is a sex and relationship researcher, educator, and therapist. She is the Jocelyn Elders Endowed Chair and Professor in Sexual Health Education at the Institute for Sexual and Gender Health at the University of Minnesota Medical School. Her research is in the area of sexual health and the intersection of sex and relationships with a focus on sexual satisfaction, compatibility, desire, and desire discrepancy. She is a regular writer for Psychology Today and has been called upon to provide expert voices for media outlets such as the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, National Public Radio, Men's Health Magazine, Cosmopolitan Magazine, and The Globe and Mail. Hello, Kristen, how are you? I am great, how are you? I'm so excited about this conversation, I'm not gonna lie. All that I had in my head all morning was, let's talk about sex, baby. I'm like, I'm going to be talking about like such an exciting conversation. And my husband, who is like a very private person, opposite of me, he was like so concerned about my oversharing about what was going to happen today. He was like, can you please, like, please don't feel the need to give any like personal input or like personal examples. You don't need to be that person. (laughs) Anyways, I'm very excited to have you. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we dig into like the juicy part? (laughs) Sure. Tell us about your journey. Yeah, so um, I was, I started in psychology. I was at Queen's University in Canada. I grew up in Canada, north of Toronto. And um, I started studying relationships at that point and found them fascinating and was just like, I studied romantic rejection for my undergraduate like research project. I didn't even like, know that was a thing. It was a really interesting study. And so that Did really, you write like, the book? He's just not that into you like that. I feel <laughs> like I didn't know you could do a paper on that or like study that. Yeah, it was very interesting. And then, um, I was also studying like LGBTQ issues and the sexuality and sexual development stuff. And I thought it was just fascinating. So um, did a graduate program um, at University of Guelph and then uh, went to the US and did more graduate work at Indiana University at the Kinsey Institute, which is where sex research began. So I got to study um, with some of the top names in the field and really dive deep. And my dissertation was on desire. So that's what really like got me into the area of sexual desire, how to maintain desire in long-term relationships. And I've been doing work in that area ever since. I spent 10 years at University of Kentucky as a professor, and now I'm at University of Minnesota in the medical school. And so um, it's been really a great journey to figuring out like what makes, what keeps people's sex lives alive and like what are the ways in which we can try and get people more comfortable talking about sex um, unlike your husband, I'm going to be, I'm super comfortable. <laughs> like I would rather talk about sex than talk about like someone's knee injury or, you know, well, yeah, obviously way really, more interesting. 
Right. But people are so uncomfortable. Right. So I think like often sex can really make people put their guard up or like, it's hard to be vulnerable and talking about it. It's also sometimes just hard to even have the language to use. Like many people, you know, in Canada and the U S we just don't have comprehensive, inclusive sex ed. And that really does a disservice. Well, maybe this is where it stems from, because I was going to say, I've lived overseas for a long time and I've gotten to know a lot. I've made friends with a lot of people who are European. I had my children in France. And so I had a lot of visits to the gynecologist and I just found that I had to change my view on my body and being comfortable um, because there's no like here, cover up with this sheet. It is take off your clothes and go walk across the room and hop on the scale. Uh, <laughs> so, like their whole, and like the beaches, no one needs a shirt. It's not a big deal. You don't have to wear a top. Why are we in North America so prudish about it? I don't know if it's, is that the right word, but I feel like we kind of are a little bit more prudish than some of our friends around the world. Yeah, we definitely are. And you know, what's really interesting too about our culture is that we use sex to sell everything except sex. So <laughs> is that right. So contraceptive advertisements, for example, like an advertisement for an IUD, which is a long-term reversible contraceptive option for women, you see those advertisements and it's like a woman, a picture of a woman with her cello. And she's like, I want more time to play with my cello. And it's like, that's not why we're using contraception. (laughs) Like we're using contraception because we want to be able to have sex for pleasure without fear of unintended pregnancy. That is why. Mm -hmm. So but we, in our culture, just totally ignore that. And yet you see an advertisement for like some random deodorant or box spray (laughs) and it's like full of sex. And so it's just like a real lack of acknowledgement that like sex is such an important part of our overall health. And I think that people in Europe in particular and in some other areas across the world see it just more pragmatically where sexual health is just really important for our overall health and well-being. And that's a natural part of our human development. So we need to just see it as such and acknowledge it and embrace it. And then we can have healthier lives. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Mm. So when it comes, a lot of our audience, um, are kind of in that age where maybe they've been married for a little while and maybe they've been married for a long while or with a partner or, you know, maybe not in the dating scene, maybe getting back into the dating scene. Uh, I saw on your website, it says that sex is the main thing that distinguishes your partner from your roommate. And I was like, whoa, yes, that is very true. And so you published a paper on keeping the spark alive. Again, I love that you are actually like researching these things. Somebody (laughs) needed to tell me this long ago. So tell me all of the things about that. Yes. I love my job. It's so great to get to study these things. (laughs) Um, so yeah, so, um, First of all, the sex sex is the main thing that distinguishes your partner from your roommate. So often we can get into the monotony of day-to-day life to where we just are like ships passing in the night and not really engaging on an intimate level. And that could mean sex. It could also just mean like facilitating intimacy and like feeling close to your partner in a sort of a 
intimate way. Um, because for some couples, sex isn't going to be like the one thing that distinguishes their partner. Like if you're asexual, for example, not to get into the weeds here, but for people who like maybe sex isn't a priority for them, that's totally okay too. As long as your partner's also on board with that. So talking about it between the two of you and like making sure that you're prioritizing your sex life, if that's important to you and prioritizing your intimate life in general, like to maintain some level of like intimate bond. Um, and so our, what our research has shown in maintaining desire in long-term relationships. So this is for people who do experience that experience of desire. They wish that they were having sex more than they are, or maybe they feel bad rejecting their partner all the time for sex, which can often be a position that we end up in, in these longer term relationships. Um, some of the ways to really prioritize your sex life and be able to keep that spark alive include like paying attention to what it is that's contributing to your own individual level of desire. So like all of us have all of these factors that contribute to the extent to which we feel like having sex. And those might be like body image issues. It might be like, I'm just really tired and have had like the kids hanging off of me all day and don't really feel like doing this right now. It might be, um, I haven't had much sleep lately or, um, or maybe it's like, I've been watching some really steamy show where I think that the main character is super sexy. Like I just finished I read watching 50 Bridget. shades of gray. Hello. Yeah, or that. Yeah. But I just finished watching Bridgerton and like the main character. I'm just like, whoo, well, like, I need <laughs> to write that down. What show was that? Those, <laughs> those sex scenes are just like really hot. So maybe it's something like that, right? Like you have like so, all of these different cues to action to make you feel like you want to have sex or not. And so talking to your partner about those and like, rather than just being that gatekeeper. So women are so often taught to be gatekeepers of sex from a very, very young age. We're taught to say no. Right. Um, we're taught that if we say yes, then that is a bad thing. And we are, you know, and this is also very unique to our culture in a way that is super steeped in religion and super steeped in like this shame idea. Um, and so we're taught from a really young age to be the gatekeepers of sex. It's not like once you get into a long-term relationship, there's suddenly a switch that just flips, right? Those messages are ingrained in our minds and really impact us and the way in which we navigate our adult, healthy sexual relationships. So talking about those things and what your individual level of desire looks like with your partner can really grow a mutual understanding and an empathy for one another when maybe you're not really feeling like having sex as much as you want. Right. So what do people do if they feel like they're on two different islands, they're worlds away on their desire levels? What do they do? So, how do you, how do yeah. they fix that? Yeah, we call that desire discrepancy and we have researched ways to mitigate desire discrepancy. Like what are the things you can do in order to bridge that gap? Hey, tell us, tell us. Yeah. So some of the things that you can do, um, some of our most recent research has looked at, um, so we can like take that on ourselves, right? We can see that our partner isn't, this isn't really meshing up with us. So I'm going to try and change something myself and see if it works. And so often we'll do that, especially if we don't want to rock the boat, we don't want to like say something. So we'll just like work on it quietly by ourselves and not maybe tell our partner about that and just see how it goes and see if it works. It turns out that that strategy actually isn't very effective. Yeah. And so it's much more effective instead to take a dyadic approach, to talk to your partner and figure out ways that the two of you can work together in order to come to a mutually agreeable solution. 
And this does not mean one person jumping up to where their, their partner's level of desire is. It means meeting in the middle and finding ways to like get those needs met. Understanding what your sexual needs are and why you want to engage in sex is a really crucial step for mitigating desire discrepancies. So like, I want to know, you want to know what are the needs that you get met by sex? right? Mm -hmm. Is it just a physical release? Is it just like a release and it feels good to have an orgasm? Like maybe that's it. And if that's it, then, well, if you are the higher desire partner, maybe you could masturbate in order to bridge that gap. Maybe we could even lay together and you could masturbate so that I don't have to participate as heavily, you know, like whatever that might be, whatever, whatever your desire level is with that. So maybe one person can just masturbate. But if what you're looking for is that, you know, when we have sex, I just feel a lot closer to you and I haven't felt very close to you lately. And so I get that emotional closeness and that physical proximity piece that really feeds me for how close I feel to you. Those pieces can't necessarily be mitigated by doing something like masturbating, right? right. Because it's not meeting that dyadic need that you need. So maybe there's something else you can do. How about, um, a massage or we um, spend more time together in different ways. Like it doesn't always have to be sexual behavior because there's lots of different ways to get those needs met. And sometimes it does need to be sexual behavior. Or sometimes right? the massage might lead to that. And then exactly. there you go. Totally, totally. So that's really um, like figuring out what those needs are can be a really helpful conversation in figuring out how to bridge that gap in a way that works for both of you and isn't like pathologizing one member of the couple because it's not one person's problem. Desire discrepancy, you might be discrepant in desire in this relationship and you would be totally opposite in your desire level of discrepancy with another relationship. So it's not a one person thing. That is a dyadic issue that needs to be addressed on that dyadic level. Okay, Kristen, you have, we've been all locked up in our houses for like a year and a half, and you have been involved in a study on sex and relationships during COVID-19. What is that? Like what's happening there? (laughs) What's everyone doing in their houses? Turns out not much. Um, (laughs) It's got to be either like one extreme or the next, maybe. I don't know. It's just, just one extreme sex is sex has dwindled over the course of of the pandemic. I think, you know, now things are getting a little bit better, not as much better up there in Canada, unfortunately, but, um, hopefully soon it will be. And, um, here in the States, like things are definitely opening back up. We're seeing sort of a light at the end of the tunnel, which I think is really invigorating people, um, in a way that we might end up seeing, uh, lot more sex happening, but during the depths of the pandemic, definitely. So we were collecting data over the course of the whole pandemic. And we definitely, um, you know, we definitely had a real, um, dip in sexual activity, not just partnered sexual activity, but even masturbation rates were down. And I think part of the reason for that is that it was just such an uncertain situation. Mm -hmm. Um, there were all these predictions. I kept getting contacted by, um, like by, publishers and stuff asking, what are your comments on this baby boom that we're about to see? And I'm like, there's not going to be a baby boom. I don't know. I have research to prove there's not. Yeah. Like that's, it's just not going to happen. And we have seen now the data do bore out in the way that shows I was right. And you know, that isn't, it's not going to happen that way. Um, there's too much uncertainty and people, you know, sex can be comforting, but at the same time, I think a lot of couples, especially who are in lockdown with kids, like if you're in lockdown with little kids, 
you're really just trying to get through day to day. And it was really actually pretty good for most relationships such that like in that the, the couples reported that their relationship satisfaction didn't suffer. It was just their sexual satisfaction that suffered. Um, but I think one of the reasons that we have that protective piece over the relationship satisfaction is that people were forced to really hunker down and work together and get through each day. And like that resulted in a bonding piece that was maybe missing for some couples that they ended up like seeing you're not so bad, you know? <laughs> okay. I'll keep you around. Yeah. Right. I'll keep you around. Like, I'm glad to be stuck. And then there are, there were relationships in our study that reported that they ended because of the pandemic. I think the pandemic mm-hmm. was, was an impetus for change in one way or another. Right. Or see, now I'm here. I go breaking my rule over sharing. Uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was like, woo, the kids aren't home. We're home, we're home alone. And then by month like 15, I'm like, okay, you again in the house all day with me here. Like, we're just like, we've been there, done that, had like the, the honeymoon phase of like the kids are going to school. But then also, like, this the pressure of when the kids are home, I think was a huge thing too. Because yeah. in Canada, we had waves of the kids are home from school learning and then they're at school learning. And I mean, when they were home, it was, it was intense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you research sexual relationship satisfaction, as we said, responsive sexual desire, desire discrepancy, maintaining satisfying sex in long-term relationships. So I would like to talk from, because our audience is mainly women, what happens? Like, I want to talk just generally about women's libido. What happens as we age? What can we expect going forward from wherever we're at? Yeah. So overall desire libido, um, it ebbs and flows over time. So I could say like, here's what a typical trajectory looks like, but I would be lying. There is no typical trajectory. Um, for some people like different life transitions, like pregnancy is a good example. So for some, when they're pregnant, they get like particularly horny and are just like, (laughs) their desire is super high for others. They hate being pregnant. It feels, it feels crappy and they just want to get it over with. And they're not, they're not excited to have sex at all. So that's one example of many where we're going to see like a lot of variation within women. However, there are a few pieces of like hormonal imbalance in particular. So, um, approaching menopause, for example, estrogen levels dip. And what that can do is it can, it can impact the actual vaginal canal in a way where the lubrication response is not going to be as pronounced. So you might be, you might end up experiencing more painful sex, um, especially if you're engaging in penetration and that more painful sex can be mitigated by using like lube. So you just maybe need to just purchase a good lube. But also the elasticity of the vaginal canal can be impacted in this, in this time, which can also be kind of painful. So getting used to different positions or like figuring out different ways. And as you can imagine, all of those things are not going to make you want sex, right? If that's Mm -hmm. happening. And so that can negatively impact your desire. Um, We also see that in times of like big transitions within life, whether that is menopause or whether that's the transition to parenthood or transition to a brand new career or like all of the different ways and maybe a big move. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're about what to talk about, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, we said we weren't going to talk personal. I've already right, broken the rules. Right. So it's fair game. Let's just give her. <laughs> so, you know, engaging in those types of transitions can, can take a toll on our libido. Um, but I will say also 
early on in relationships, we really rely on this thing called spontaneous sexual desire. And that's sort of a desire that we're taught about, right? It's like this feeling of like, Ooh, look at you. Like, I feel like this spontaneous feeling of desire, you know, that really like kicks in when you see something that arouses you or makes you, makes you think about sex. Um, or even just like that excitement within the beginning parts of relationships, that's spontaneous desire. It's that like feeling that drive that like feels like it comes before sex. However, most women and most men, honestly, um, especially in the context of longer term relationships, have to rely on what we call responsive sexual desire. And responsive sexual desire is um, not as, well, it's not as spontaneous. <laughs> um, it's not this like drive. It doesn't feel like this thing that's driving sexual behavior. It's more often like a response to arousal. So maybe you don't really feel like having sex, but you're like, you know, I know that I feel good after I have sex. I don't want to say no to my partner again, because I want him to, him or her to know like how I feel about him or her. And I want them to like, just feel that connection. And I know I feel that connection. So you engage in sex anyway, even if you don't feel like it. And often what happens in that pattern is once you start engaging in that sexual behavior, then the desire kicks in halfway through the sex act, or maybe even at the end, you know, it, it just, that desire follows. And that's also desire. So patients will come to me, for example, and they'll say like, I don't have any desire. And what they're talking about is spontaneous desire. They probably do have responsive desire in there. They just need to find the ways to kickstart it. It's kind they of like running find- and getting your stride. You're like, okay, I'm 3K in, I got my stride. And then you can oh. run. Um, yeah, kind yeah. of what you're saying is basically, even if you don't feel like doing it, if you give it a shot, chances are halfway in, you're like, yes, who has sex and says, mm, that was a really bad, like if you're in, if you're in a relationship and you know, it's, it's a healthy situation. If you're like, okay, yeah, I'll just do it. Like you're never finished and think, oh, that was a terrible idea. It's usually, it usually feels pretty good by the end. Right. So yeah, I think that that's the crucial component too, right? Is this is in the context of like a healthy relationship. You've got a bunch of relationship issues going on and like, you're not feeling respected or heard or like you've got, then there's some relationship stuff to work on first, you know, before you use that tactic. But for sort of the run of the mill, like, the spark is gone and it's just Talking, like say that for the married people in the back. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like for those scenarios. Yeah. It can be really helpful to just kind of go for it. And uh, we've done research that's shown like that for people who engage in sex today without desire. So if you engage in sex, but you don't have desire, your desire is actually higher the next day. So it, it legitimately kickstarts the desire cycle. So we need to kind of like, kickstart that and get it going again. Like how long does that last for? So we've seen like, it goes in like three day cycles. We did another study that looked at synchronicity as well between partners. And we found that, um, partners were like three day lagged from each other in the context of our study, but yeah. So do men or women have a longer kickstart after I can't remember the word you used, like, Uh, is there a difference in, in gender with that? Or it's just generally speaking. We didn't, the more you do it, the more you want it. Yeah. We didn't see gender differences in the context of either of those studies that I'm talking about. There were no gender differences. And another interesting gender piece that we've found consistently in our research has been that when we look at sexual desire on a day-to-day level, we see that 
men and women are equally likely to be the member of the couple with lower desire relative to their partner. So this sort of old trope of like women saying I have a headache and like women being the ones who don't feel like having sex, that's a total stereotype and like actually doesn't, doesn't play out in our data. Um, it also like can, it just really is like showing us how our cultural expectations around men and women and how they're supposed to behave and act are really damaging us in our sex lives. Like, for example, we see that men are far less likely to admit or want to talk about sexual desire discrepancy problems when the man is the one with the lower desire relative to their partner. And in part, that's because of like, men have this expectation and this pressure on them that they're always supposed to be ready and willing for sex, always supposed to be like pursuing sex. Mm -hmm. And so when they're not fitting that, that stereotype, that can be really hard. They don't want to feel unmanly. Totally. Yeah. It's like a, yeah, it's like a hit to their manhood, which is complete bullshit. Like that's, that's stupid. Um, and you know, doesn't serve anyone. Um, yeah. Let's talk for a minute about orgasms because everybody wants to know. So (laughs) orgasms in general, you hear about like some women have never orgasmed and some women have multiple orgasms. Like, is this just luck of the draw or is it something that can be taught? Is it something that comes later in life for some women you hear about, but also I think that there comes a point, like when you're 16 and like sex is this like new thing, whether people are having it then or not, I feel like you're kind of more open with your girlfriends because those are your people. And as people go on to get married or, or long-term relationships or the older we get oftentimes. And because like people know each other's husbands and I'm like, Oh, I don't want to picture that. Like we don't often talk about orgasms anymore and, and who's having them and who's not. So yeah. Can it, can it be taught? Is it fair? Is it not fair? Who, <laughs> what's, what's the story there? Why are some women blessed with multiple orgasms and some women aren't knowing how to orgasm at all? Yeah. Um, So orgasm problems are actually one of the easier ones to treat in the context of therapy. And one of the reasons for that is because so many women who come in with orgasm issues with that being their primary complaint actually just have never really explored their own bodies. And so um, that can be a big piece and a big barrier to get through of like really educating how to explore your own body and get to know your own pleasure points first before integrating a partner into the scenario. And so that would be like a homework assignment that I'd give someone who um, like hasn't ever experienced orgasm, for example. And then for some people, they can maybe um, have orgasm by themselves, but they have difficulty um, in having an orgasm when they're part, when they're with a partner. And we would call that like um, being like a generalized versus situational orgasm problem. And so if it's a situational orgasm problem where Um, somebody just has trouble with their partner, then we would start to look at what are some of the things that are coming up for you during that sexual act? Are you able to actually be in the moment? Um, Or are you thinking about your to-do list? Or are you thinking about how your body looks in this position? Or are you, are you focused on um, whether someone, whether one of the kids is going to walk through the door? Like all of those things are not going to be really conducive to having an orgasm. So no. Is, is someone born with a certain ability to orgasm and others not? No. This can be taught to an extent. Um, there are lots of toys out there. If like clitoral sensitivity, well, first of all, clitoris is key. Like 
if yeah. anyone is ignoring the clitoris and wondering why they're not having an orgasm, like there's your answer. Move the target. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So that's crucial. Um, also, the clitoris is only the tip of an iceberg. So you can think about the clitoris as like, it has these deep roots that go into the body and those also become engorged and also become aroused. And there's also like a lot of um, components to the clitoris that are much deeper than that um, little bean that you might see on the outside of the vulva. So thinking about like ways to really get to know your body and figuring out how to um, best stimulate yourself. And also that does require a level of communication and comfort with communication with a partner that I think a lot of couples don't have. Um, and part of that is just lack of having the correct vocabulary or like feeling comfortable saying those words or so it might mean like practicing in a mirror. It might mean using technology to your advantage and sending your partner text messages. Um, there's lots of different ways that you can work toward figuring out how to navigate that that situation that I think can be really really important for being able to even open the door to multiple orgasms and multiple orgasms. I mean, those are also accessible to anyone. Um, so usually typically the way that the female body works, and this is like cisgender female genitals, like vulva and vagina, um, you're going to have a little bit of a refractory period, perhaps um, a percentage of time that you have to wait until you can stimulate again. But usually people, um, if, if they push through that and, and continue stimulation, usually that, you know, that's the route to multiple, to engaging in multiple orgasms. And for some people, a multiple orgasm means multiple, like one really, really long orgasm that ends up like having multiple contractions in it. For other people, it might mean like two seconds of space in between. And then we start up over again. Um, you know, for penises are harder on this, <laughs> no pun intended. Um, <laughs> but they like, actually do have a refractory period and they can be trained to minimize that refractory period. That's usually done through like masturbation training. Um, but you know, I don't think that's something that is necessary yeah. <laughs> yeah. to get enough orgasms on their own. Like I don't feel bad for that. I don't yeah, really. No. <laughs> um, so basically and- you're telling us practice makes perfect. Yeah. And I think it's, it's worth mentioning that there is a huge orgasm gap. Like there just is women who have sex with men have the least number of orgasms. Women who have sex with women have a lot of orgasms. Um, and men are always having orgasms. So like (laughs) their percentage of their orgasm rate is like 98% or something. And it drops down to like 68% in the context of like women who have sex with men. So it's just like, really this orgasm gap is a thing that exists. And like women's pleasure just is so rarely prioritized that it's no wonder that they're not having orgasms. And in the context like of how like, do we fix that? Sex, That's just having like being open and having conversation with your partner. I would imagine having a partner who's receptive to it and who is giving too, right? Yeah. Like having a partner who is, um, Dan Savage talks about like being GGG, good giving and game. And my colleague and friend studied that concept and she found that, um, that that's a, a concept called uh, sexual communal strength. So it's the extent to which you're willing to meet your partner's sexual needs. And so if you're higher in that willingness to meet your partner's sexual needs, then you're probably going to have a more satisfying and pleasure filled sex life. Well, yeah, that's where the discrepancy is going to come in. If you know, exactly. you're not, if you know, you're not going to orgasm, well, what's, it's almost like a, well, mm, 
you can only, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I could understand that someone would only want to be interested so often if that wasn't happening for them. Exactly. Right. And so really, um, and, and also if you are having trouble orgasming, the one thing that's going to make sure you're not going to probably orgasm is focusing on trying to make yourself orgasm. Yeah. (laughs) Like making that the goal, I would say like move away from goal oriented sex and move toward pleasure oriented sex where it's like, not, did I have an orgasm or not, but how much pleasure did I receive and how much pleasure did I feel I was giving in the context of that sexual interaction. Um, Really focusing on pleasure rather than orgasm can help you get to orgasm. Right. Mm -hmm. So I know people always want to know this. You probably get asked this all the time, but people who are in long-term relationships, everybody wants to be quote unquote normal. Like what is the normal amount or how much sex should long-term relationship people be having? Is there a magic number? There is actually, oddly. Um, okay, I'm so getting a pen. not a normal though. Let me say that. There's not a normal. I think normal is defined within each relationship and will change over the course of time. And I don't think there's anything wrong with having an idea in your mind with your partner of how many times you'd like to have sex in a week or in a month making sure that you meet, meet that quota, just like you meet all your other quotas. I think that that's actually a pretty healthy approach because it means that you're prioritizing your sex life. And so often in long-term relationships, our sex lives are the first thing to go to the wayside when we're, when we're busy and when we're not prioritizing it. So making a goal like that to me is a beneficial thing for a relationship. That said, um, there's no like standard normal. Here's what it should be. However, my, that same person who did that sexual communal strength Mm -hmm. research, Amy Muse, she also found that, um, she looked at, you know, that study that was done where they looked at like how much money you make a year and where your happiness. Yeah. 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 And it was like $75,000 a year or something. It was like Mm -hmm. lower than people thought, but like your happiness goes up until then. And then like, just kind of stays stable. So she replicated that with number of times a week, people were having sex. And she found that she and her team found that one time a week, happiness increased up to one time a week. And then once you hit that once a week threshold, happiness didn't decrease, but it also didn't continue to increase. So it's not like people having sex once a week, were not any less happy than people who were having sex five times a week. So I tend to suggest make once a week your target. And that is a scientifically sound, um, scientifically sound scientist says benchmark (laughs) to try and aim for. And if you can reach that, then, um, you know, that happiness component at least is, is intact. Okay. So we need to make $75,000 and have sex once a week is what you're telling me. (laughs) (laughs) I I think that, that, um, that 75, that's a very outdated study. So I would not actually endorse that one. I think they need to replicate that now. They need to do a new study on that, but okay, we'll stick with the once a week, have sex once a week. I can feel confident in that one. (laughs) Okay. Noted. Mm -hmm. I have some wine, women and well-being rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready? Okay. Mm -hmm. If you could sit down and have a glass of wine with one woman, living or dead, who would you like to sit down for a conversation with? Oh, <laughs> um, oh my gosh. There's so many, but, um, probably Gloria Steinem. Okay. What is your go-to well-being or self-care practice? 
So I try and not as much as I should, but I try and do mindfulness exercises and, um, I like exercise in general, like running yoga and biking are all really helpful for me in, in doing that. Your favorite book or podcast recommendation. Um, my favorite podcast is armchair expert with Zach Shepard um, <laughs> and Monica Padman. So that's a good one of those. And then I'm currently reading David Sedaris's latest book, which is also released. I would recommend any David Sedaris book. Okay. And what does sisterhood mean to you? Um, well, I have such a solid group of women in my life, um, between like my actual sister mm -hmm. and then also people who have been chosen as, as that. And I think, um, it means being there for each other, showing up, being empathetic, um, and really having like prioritizing that those are really important relationships in life. Okay. Last one. What advice would you give to your 16 year old self? Oh, I would tell my 16 year old self to stop worrying about men's sexual pleasure and stop <laughs> worrying about blue balls. Cause it's stupid. And like, don't worry about any of that and prioritize instead what I want and what I need, not just with sex, but with everything. I think. Oh, good. Oh, love that. Wish, wish I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> don't we all, don't we yeah. all. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kristen, for being with us here today. It has been a pleasure. We have learned, no pun intended, it has been a pleasure. <laughs> We've learned a lot and um, we will put in the notes how to find you or just tell us right now, how do we find you online? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Kristen Mark or um, my website's kristenmark.com. Thanks, Kristen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, friends. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and recommend us to a friend. Head to winewomenwellbeing.com to find out more about what our community is all about and reach out to us on social media. We'd love to connect. Until next time, stay classy, stay kind. <laughs>